1: on the mixtape just around the corner did a lot in california
2: can't wait to drop this on you yeah they gon' have fun with that smash like song man. my songs gonna break through like a running back Hello
0: and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. It is Boxing Day, December 26th, 2022. Not joining me today, my friend, my colleague, my frenemy, my neighbor, Mr. Mark Daly. He is resting. He is recovering after a massive Christmas dinner. But instead, I have a very special guest joining me today, live from the UK, the one, the only, Mr. Ed Spencer. Ed, how the heck are you? Very good, thank you, Mark. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I We sit here secretly recording a few days before Boxing Day, but uh, how was your holiday so far? How's your holidays been?
1: Fairly good, although there's, of course, a winter bug passing around, which means it's a little bit like
0: playing... It, it, it's almost like trying to dodge the di- winter disease, but apart
1: from that, it's fine.
0: You know, I think our listeners, most of whom are in the US, we, we joke that our show is canadian but we're in america adjacent probably a lot of them are wondering what boxing day is can you provide a brief explanation for what because i can't do it i celebrate it i enjoy it but i don't really know what it is what is boxing it's Day? it's a
1: public holiday and mainly it's used well it's it's the mo- it's supposed to commemorate something but i'm not quite sure most of people know it mainly it's just a day to it's just a day to eat more cheese drink more alcohol, or watch a lot more television (laughs) and maybe also watch some dance or some football over here. So it's more of a day of a rest after a pretty busy Christmas day because it's never quiet
0: on Christmas. It's also obviously in Canada, a holiday as well. uh, But it's also historically been our biggest retail day of the year. So the U.S. has always enjoyed Black Friday. That's become a bit of a global phenomenon now. But historically, Boxing Day was always the biggest sales day of the year in this country. The stores would have big clearance sales. They would have sales. People would have gift cards from Christmas that they want to spend. So Boxing Day is the biggest retail day of the year but that is said people aren't here to listen to us talk and ramble on about holidays that are common to countries within the british commonwealth they want to hear us talk about formula one but before we do it ed i i think and i know a lot of our followers follow you on twitter and if you don't definitely give ed a follow on twitter we'll give you an opportunity to talk about that at the end of the show but uh but maybe introduce yourself and talk a little bit about yourself for those that maybe aren't familiar with you and the work that you do
2: so, if
1: you are unfamiliar with me, my name is Ed Spencer. I'm a Formula One journalist for Total Motorsport. Uh, this year, I had the pleasure of attending three Grand Prix as a FIA accredited uh, journalist for the now, sadly, uh, defunct publication Motorsport. I attended the Spanish, Monaco and British Grand Prix and also I'm frequently in after-session after media se- sessions via Zoom. Uh, you may have seen me in sessions where I was having a little chat with Christian Horner in Mexico regarding the budget cap. I've also mingled with Mateo Benotto, Toto Wolf, and I'm also a proud F1 a, a passionate F1 fan, I should say, who does love the more tedious side of it, which is the nooks and crannies of the history side of knowing which pay driver drove there, which drove, drove that. And hopefully next year, yeah, I will be at more Grand Prix's to give you the latest from inside what is still called the Piranha Club.
0: That's awesome. I love it. My friend, And we ask everybody this because I think it's relevant because so many of our listeners are new to Formula One and they're still new to the sport. And I think a lot of people like to share how they became uh, engrossed in the world of Formula One. You grew up in the UK. How did did your life initially intersect with Formula One? I
1: think really it was because my grandparents were both into it. One was a, a fan of Nigel Mansell who was extremely popular in the early 90s, late 80s, because of how the British public related to him as a working-class hero and how he would always give 110% effort by the wheel. And my other granddad was a fan of uh, Michael Schumacher. A bit odd at the time, considering that Michael had just beaten Damon Hill to two world championships and wasn't exactly Mr. Popular amongst some in the British motorsport community. But I got my love for everyone through for for them, and, yeah, the bug kind of didn't shift when I was young it was one way or the other I was going to be involved in the sport and
0: I haven't looked back since I've shared this story before but there's definitely some commonality between the two of us because like I mentioned to you when we were getting started I grew up in the UK and I would spend every summer at my grandparents house in in South Devon but every Sunday it was the same routine it was a Sunday roast usually roast beef and then we would watch Nigel Mansell on on TV and and he was huge like I think it's it's difficult to understate um just how big he was in terms of British pop culture At the time. All right, my friend, I want to jump into the agenda here because I want to be super respectful of your time. But uh, recently we went through a bit of a revolving door experience with some team principals and some executives in Formula One. And I don't remember ever seeing anything quite like this. And to recap, Matteo Bonato resigned at Ferrari presumably before he was pushed off the ledge. Um, obviously, Fred Vessour, uh was his subsequent uh, replacement. He was re- he was hired from Sauber Audi, or I guess at this point, just Sauber Alfa Romeo. Andrea Seidel assumed a massive, 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 uh, I would say, opportunity or promotion to go and run the Sauber Audi project. And then Andrea Stella assumes the team principal role beneath Zach Brown at McLaren. Do you ever recall a period of so much motion within the team principal and the executive level in Formula One in such a short period of time? No, I don't think
1: I've ever seen anything like this. We've seen the driving shift, particularly in the pandemic period in 2020. And we also saw the great FIA movement of 2022 when executives were coming and going. Also, we had Michael Massey departing for the joint uh, ticket of Niels Wittich and Eduardo Frites. But I've never seen this level of action in terms of the team principles coming and going. Also, Josh Capito unexpectedly leaving Williams. That was a complete shock to all of us because he was putting the stumbling, he was putting the blocks of, you know, a potential Williams revival. And then all of a sudden he's departing. Uh, For Benotto, I think he's always, he was always under pressure from, I would say, 2020 when, Ferrari had that really, really rough season when they were getting dragged through the media. There was the internal squabbling between the Ferrari management and Sebastian Vettel, who was on his way out. And this year they had the foundations to win the championship and it just didn't go right. And, you know, I, I, I've I, been in Benotto's media sessions and as the season went on, I, for me personally, he started to get more and more agitated, like when there was criticism from outside. He would get very defensive, and you would almost you would almost think is this really a man in control of his own destiny, or is this a man on the hot seat? So, I think he should have been given another year to prove himself, uh, because I think you know it is a very tough job being the Friday team principal. So you not only represent a glorious manufacturer, you also represent the entire country. But unfortunately, the Piranha Club works in mysterious ways, and he was kicked out for. Fred Vasseur, who I think, for me personally, is the best possible choice. The man is a winner. Bearing in mind, before he went to Alfa Romeo, he was part of ART Grand Prix, which runs in F2. And under his leadership, ART became serial winners in F2. Sorry, GP2 and F2 and F3. Lewis Hamilton, Nico Rosberg, Nico Ochenberg, Stop Van Dorn. They all went through ART to F1 through him and through his leadership, along with Nicholas Todd. Uh, with Seidel, Seidel was a big shot because we all assumed that was a very stable uh, situation but now we now it's emerged that more it was always in the pipeline. It is a big jump for him going from a team principal role to a CEO role of Audi but he's got a very good position in the fact that Audi are very very focused on what they want to do they're very keen to win in Formula One but I think they'll give him time and they'll also give him the free reign to choose whichever team principal what whichever team principal he wants. That may of course be Josh Capito. As for Andres Stella, this was another big surprise because I think not many of us would have said Andres Stella would have been a team principal at the start of twenty twenty two. But this man has a fine pedigree. He was Fernando Alonso's race engineer for quite some time. And he's worked hard in the background to help McLaren go from where they were in 2015, which was at the bottom of the F1 tree, right back to where they were, where they're fighting for podiums and even on a race in 2021. So there's, a lot, there's been a lot of action, but I still think we still have a lot to, still have a lot going on. Williams has still got to find the team principal. The Sauber Audi project has got to find a new team principal. So we've got through the main course. We're still waiting for the dessert of the team principal merry-go-round.
0: I love that and I love the way that you describe it as a, <laughs> a dessert my my friend the Matteo Bonato situation and and you're right it seemed to be it seemed to be something that just culminated over the course of the season and Ferrari was obviously publicly reprimanded by fans and media for some very public issues with respect to strategy execution and some other things that unfortunately played out in public. What do you think Fred is going to do in that situation that maybe Matteo Bonato didn't? Because Fred's coming into a unique situation. And and I've said this before on the show that if I'm the general manager of an NBA team or a major league baseball team, or if I'm taking over a Formula One team, my preference is to take over a broken project and build it from the ground up i think in fred's case he's taking over a team and and i i think vina and john elkin and other executives at ferrari believe that this is a team capable of winning championships next year meaning that the expectations on him are immense from day one that a second place finish in the championship probably isn't going to be tolerated how and and how and what does he do to navigate that situation to perform better than Matteo Bonato? What did Matteo Bonato fail to do that Fred could potentially do to make that a more profitable, equitable situation from a winning perspective?
1: It's tough, really to say with Matteo, what went wrong with him. I think he could have done with some more help. That's what I will say. I think Matteo could have done with some extra assistance at times, because you know, not every you can't do everything. In running the team, and he did want John Todd, but uh, if you believe the rumors, Elkman said no. I think what Vasseur will do is he will bring honesty and straightforwardness to the job. He will say to Elkman and Vigna, Let me do my job. I've won championships. I've helped teams go from the bottom to the mid pack and potentially even to the top of the grid, front of the grid. Let me do my job. I think his first job is to really kind of diffuse. The issues that have been created. There's been rumors going around that um, the clerks' management, Charles the clerks' management, it wasn't isn't really keen to renew the Ferrari deal. What his first priority, as well as make getting back to the winning ways that they had at the start of the season, is to get Charles the signed for post twenty twenty four. It seems a long time away, but you never know what's around the corner. Red Bull may have a drive opening up Mercedes. They need to get this guy signed. They need to get Charles the signed up again. Because he is the lead driver and it's very hard to find another Charles per se. I think also Fred needs people to help him out, as I've said. And I also think he needs to get both camps on side. There's been all sorts of stuff going around that the camp wasn't fully united, i.e. there's two sides of the camp, there's a sides camp and there's a clerk camp. When you're divided, you're never gonna win anything. And that's what the danger that's the dangers that Red Bull may have next year if Chaco Perez and Max Verstappen continue on the ramificate. continue on the feud from last year. But I think what what Vercur needs to do is restore stability, tell people, this is my job, I've been put here to do this job, let me do it. In short, don't
0: have the higher-ups from the Agnellis tell them, look, you do this, you do that. Talk a little bit about, and and we talked about this on one of our recent podcasts, The the value of... Being able to clearly articulate throughout the team who your lead driver is and isn't. And and I've argued in the past that unless you are in the situation of Mercedes circa 14, 15, 16, where you are predestined to win both championships just because the, the margin between the performance of your package and that of everyone else on the grid is so significant – that, that you could afford not to, to articulate who that lead driver is. But in the case of Ferrari, nothing is predestined, that they are guaranteed to win nothing next year. Should they do more to clearly articulate who their lead driver is? Because it seems that that was something that Matteo and the rest of the Ferrari leadership seemed reluctant to do, that I think we all know that Charles Leclerc is, should be, but within the team, were they doing enough structurally and strategically to define that Charles Leclerc is the lead driver, as you just described him a few moments ago. I think so.
1: I think, don't do it straight away, because that will leave the second driver very demotivated. I think what you should do is, by the time Formula 1 gets back to Europe, which will be the Emilio-Romanian Grand Prix in, the, in late May, you make your decision then, depending on the driver's standings and who's performing better. You don't have to do it straight away. You can take as long as you want, but you can't leave it till mid the midpoint of the championship when you've got Red Bull and Mercedes potentially hot on your heels. You can't do that. And I think that was what another mistake Matea made was he didn't say, right, lead driver, second driver. When clearly to me and you, the one who was the one Ferrari driver was going to win the championship last year and beat Max Verstappen was Charles de Gluck. It was not Carlos Sainz. Carlos was too far back at that point. And if Vassar... Makes that decision by Spain, he can get both sides, uh, both camps on side, but he can also then prioritize the driver they feel
0: they can win the championship, whoever that may be. We'll have to see by the time we get to Imola. I think enough about Ferrari. The question that I'm really interested in hearing from you is about Andreas Seidel, and you know I think when he was at at McLaren, we've we've and I think a lot of people have deservedly so given McLaren a lot of credit for the. The rebuild of that organization over the last couple of years, obviously, they still carry some significant debt, but structurally, they've done a lot of work to stabilize the economics of that team, um, to impress upon the global audience what a great brand it is. And, and Obviously, if you look at the sponsorships they've been able to attract, that's working. They're hugely popular in the United States. Their drivers have global global reach and global consideration that they're doing a lot of great stuff, but... Zach Brown, I think, sometimes is such a big personality. He he sucks up a lot of the oxygen in the room. And I don't know that Andreas Seidel was truly recognized for the work that he was doing at that facility and at that team to support the rebuild. But recently, he was given a monumental opportunity to shape and lead one of the biggest projects we've ever seen in Formula One, which is the Sauber Audi project. And as we all know, we know Audi is going to enter the sport over the next couple of years. They're going to take more and more financial control of the Sauber group. He gets to lead this project, which involves the creation of the 2026 power unit, the transformation of the existing Sauber facility, bringing all those resources together and getting a car ready to hit the grid in 2026. Like you said, he still has to hire a team principal. So there's still quite a bit of work to do there, but what kind of opportunity or just how big a recognition of the work that he's done at McLaren. Is this that the Volkswagen group has chosen him to lead the Audi F1 project? There's
1: two sides to this, really, if you think about it. Um, Seidel has been part of the Volkswagen group before. The fact that he was with Porsche and Porsche dominated Le Mans with his hit assistance, bearing in mind they won three Le Mans on the Bats when he was in charge before he went to McLaren. And if you look at what he's done at McLaren, bearing in mind that the wind tunnel isn't quite up to scratch. They've been using customer engines. They don't have. I don't. I would. I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say they have the same level of budget Mercedes, Ferrari, or Red Bull have. And they've consistently been P four, P four, P five. He's done a tremendous job for a team that, you know, a few years ago, as as I've said, they were a bit of a punching bag, for <laughs> F one fans and journalists alike. So he's done a tremendous job, and I think this is a huge. Um, this is him getting his flowers as as people say these days. this is him getting his flowers after you know almost being slightly in the shadow of Zach, but I think this is a really good opportunity for him to stamp his authority down. Yes, as you say, the team principal role is going to be a big task it's going to be a big uh it's going to be hard for him to really process which candidate he needs and also getting the engine ready in time and fully tested, which was the downfall of Honda in the fact they didn't give it enough testing time, will be one of his key one of his key objectives. But I think he will be ready, and I think he will do a good job. He will just need the board at Volkswagen to help. Him. What
0: do you think will be the ways upon which he puts his fingerprints on that project? I mean, the good news is that Audi has... I mean, ultimately, I talk about these OEMs having huge budgets, but in the budget cap era, does that really matter the way it would have four or five years ago? Probably not. But I I think, you know, when he was with McLaren, that was a team that was operating with a significant amount of debts, and they were relying on a significant amount of golf money to continue to pay down debt and to restructure the team. That's not going to be a concern here. Budgetary concerns and managing debt won't be an issue. In what ways do you think he's going to shape this project?
1: I think the way that he'll shape it is that the fact he has a blank canvas, so he can do what he wants to bring the sports car side of it into Formula 1. It's a difficult transition. Peugeot didn't do very well when they went from sports car to F1, but he can stamp his authority down by bringing in the lessons he learned from McLaren and also Porsche and put it into the Audi project. When you have winners in charge of your team, the winning mentality passes it on, passes it on whether that's a team at the front or team at the back. And I think that's what Andres will do. And then I also think he will he will want to have some sort of authority in all of the projects that Audi are focusing on. But I think he'll let them get on with it. And I think he'll also work collaboratively with Volkswagen and also the people still out from there slash Salva until the transition is officially confirmed in 2026. So I think he really is going to spend the first few months of his, ro- his job so the first few months as CEO, really learning about the place and really getting, getting back to where he was at BMW before eventually really stamping his authority down and putting in the blocks for the Audi move into Formula 1
0: 26. I'm eager to talk a little bit about the Williams situation, but let's take a quick break. We've got to pay some of those proverbial bills, but as soon as we get back, we are going to jump over to Grove and uh, talk a little bit about Williams. See you on the flip side Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. It is Boxing Day, December 26, 2022. I am being joined by the one, the only, FIA credentials reporter, Mr. Ed Spencer. We are talking a little bit about the recent happenings in the world of Formula One. We talked a little bit about the team principal, roundabout, merry-go-round that we've seen. But now I want to talk a little bit about Williams. And, And I bring this up because... Obviously, like you, grew up in the UK in the early 90s, and Williams was absolutely a pillar of the sporting landscape led by drivers like, obviously, Nigel Mansell. And, of course, they were hugely successful and continued to win championships right up until 1997 when Jacques won the World Drivers' Championship. But since then, the team has... Not necessarily been in total disarray, but it's clearly been mired at the bottom end of the championship standings. And short of some podiums that they were able to capture in the 2014 to 2016 period and that very fortunate Lance Stroll podium in 2017, they've largely been irrelevant in the last five or six years. A couple of years ago, obviously, Doralton Capital, a big U.S. investment firm, bought Williams from the Williams family, which was obviously a sad moment because the Williams family had been an institution in Formula One for many, many, many years. And one of the first things that Dalton Capital did was hire Yost Capito to lead the rebuild of this organization. Almost two years to the day from his hiring, he departed. It's not totally clear whether his departure was something of his own volition, whether it was forced, whether it was a mutual agreement not to renew his contract, but for all of us in the media and all of us that follow the sport, this was a bit of a shock because we all understood that Doralton had tasked him with rebuilding this team. Two years later, the team is still an absolute underperformer on the track. I think they took a step back this year relative to how they did in 2021. They did manage to sign an American driver in Logan Sargent to partner with Alex Albon, but I'm not so clear that their prospects for the future are any better now than they were two years ago. Talk a little bit about your reaction to Jost Capito's departure. Did it come to you as a surprise? And if it was, what do you think is the catalyst or what do you think was the catalyst for this move? I think it is a
1: huge surprise. I don't think any of us were expecting Jost Capito to leave Williams. He seemed very committed to the project. He seemed very committed to trying and help them move further up the grid. But evidently, Doris and Capital have had other ideas and it's apparently gone as far as Uh, Earlier this season, they started making plans for a post-Capito Williams. I think it's difficult really to say where it went wrong, but I think this year they were expected to make a step up. 2020 had been pretty miserable. 2021 had been pretty good by their standards. You know, they got a podium in Spa in the race that never was. The Teefi got points. Russell got points. And they were expected to move up. It seemed like a team back on the rise. So when the car didn't perform and when it was... Stuck at the back. That's when you started to think something isn't right. Alex Albon did fairly well in that car, and he got a good haul of points. So did Nick De Nicholas Satifi, sadly. I thought the writing was on the wall for him when Sargent started to really, really get, move up the championship, move up the F2 standings. So I think it was... it. It was likely that something was going to change. I didn't think it would be Josh Capito. I thought it would be someone else. And now we're, we're wondering who's going to take the job at Williams. This is the third team principal in three years. You know, they had Claire Williams, then Simon Robert before he departed, and now Josh Capito. You know, you have to wonder who's going to take over. And, you know, four team principals in four years is not stable. This is not This is not a good look for a Formula One team that's trying to move its way back into the mid the top of the midfield. So I'm I'm intrigued about what Dorrit and Capital will do next and how it's going to impact Logan Sergeant and Alex Albon. Albon, I think, will probably start looking around for a better drive. Sergeant will just be looking to keep his head above water in what may be a difficult year. But it's not a good prospect for Williams and I'm I'm afraid to say I can see them being stuck at the back for maybe one or two more
0: years. It's, It's a unique situation because we talk about the Audi Sauber opportunity for Andreas Seidel being a dream opportunity. Who doesn't want to lead an F1 project at an OEM that's entering the sport for the first time and brings with them a wealth of knowledge and experience and financial resources I think I think this is a far less attractive job that if I am a candidate or a prospect to be a team principal is this where I want to put down roots in in Grove with the team that has Fairly antiquated facilities increasingly when you compare to the investments that are being made in places like Marinello and Silverstone with Aston Martin, and of course, Brackley and Bricksworth and all these different places, that what was great maybe 20 years ago is significantly less great today, but it's also a team that's clearly mired at the bottom. And you have to think that if Doralton Capital had made the decision to pivot away from Capito, it's because they believe something is fundamentally broken. And if I'm going in there as a new team principal, you have to assume that that person's going to have to reboot once again. And if they were mired at the bottom this year, and it takes reportedly two to three years to build out that car, we can probably expect this team to continue to underperform right now until 2026. And I think Dalton had probably been willing to accept um, a lack of performance and struggles on the grid in the era pre-2022, because we were all excited to see what the regulations could deliver in 2022 in terms of resetting the grid and and creating more equitable racing and kind of closing that gap from a sporting competitive perspective. But now all of a sudden you're in a situation where you're going to have to reboot again, and maybe your prospects of chasing podiums are kicked down the road to 2026. Who do you think they could possibly go after? And and would somebody that's capable of being a team principal really want this job at at Williams? It's
1: tough to say because there isn't really that many candidates available. Serial Beatles going to Hyundai for their WRC project, um, of course. There's, there's, there's a few others out, uh, off the top of my head. You know, maybe uh, Martin Budkowski, but he didn't see, when I spoke to him in Spain, he didn't seem in a rush to get a new job. There has been rumors that Susie Wolff might want to take the job and I think she would do a very good job. But would Susie Wolf want to go to a team that's mined at the back? I'm not so sure. It's 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 a job that I think for it to succeed you need someone technical as like a stopgap and then you bring someone else in for when that new regulation change comes in the 26. Really, realistically, Williams need to start looking for a factory engine deal. There's one available potentially with Porsche, maybe with Honda if they don't go back with Red Bull. But if you're pinning all your hopes on a factory engine deal. That's got its own risk in itself. Because what happens if they don't see. If they don't see any positives about having their engine in the William, Williams. You're kind of screwed. And I don't know. It, it, it's a job that. It, it has its perks. But if you've got Doralton who is. I would say. How would I put this? if they increasingly want results and you know you can't do it on the facilities alone it's kind of a bit of a career killer so yeah it's going to be difficult to see who it's difficult to say who's going to get that job
0: i like that point though that you made about a prospective partnership with a with a manufacturer so we know that they've been partnered with with mercedes now for the entire duration of the turbo hybrid era they've been rocking a mercedes power unit which should in a lot of circumstances be fairly advantageous to you. It provides supreme power and supreme reliability. But ideally, if you're a McLaren or if you're Williams, you want to have a partnership with an OEM and you want to be able to build a car, build build a power unit in tandem so you get the po- best possible package. One of the things that was reported after Yas Kapito's departure was that this could be laying the groundwork for a much bigger integration with Porsche, perhaps, or maybe with Honda, do you think that the best possible route for the security and the stability of this team in the future would potentially be an OEM partnership, whether it's a significant investment from Honda, a significant investment from Porsche, do you think that would be the best possible outcome for this team? Absolutely.
1: I think you can't go wrong with not with having a factory engine deal. Every team dreams of having it. And when you have a factory engine deal, it means you, can create, you control your own destiny. You're not relying on you know, the custom, being a customer. You can tell them, okay, we want this, we want that, we want it done by this. And it would be great for the brand image of Williams too. Williams is iconic with Formula One fans all over the world. And by having Porsche, a world-recognized brand, you create another layer of marketing inside. You create another level of funding. More sponsors will want to know a Williams-Porsche team. Or a Williams Honda team, you create also another market in Germany or Japan, and there's so many upsides to it. It's hard to see any really any negatives. The only negative you may get is the t- is the engine company may say, okay, well we want this, we want this, we want this, and that may not be possible. But that's fairly mi- that's a fairly minor downside considering the fact there's so many upsides. So yeah, they need to go with Porsche or with Honda. Depends what happens next with. It's with them because Honda and Porsche are rumored to be with Alfa They're rumored to be with this, that, and the other team. So Williams have got to have
0: a good sales pitch. How do you think the 2020, and just pivoting a little bit here, but how do you think the 2022 regulations played out? Obviously, if you're adults in capital, if you're Yas Capito, 2022 was the year that you were building towards as it was for Ferrari, as it was for a lot of the smaller teams on the grid, that investing in a 2020, 2020 car or a 2021 car – Didn't make any sense after a certain point, unless you were convinced that you could win a championship like Mercedes and Red Bull teams that were fighting for a championship right down to the wire at the end of 2021. But for a lot of these other teams sinking and investing your money into a 2020 or 21 car, when the 2022 regulations were right around the corner, didn't necessarily make sense at the beginning of the season. Formula One was applauded because it felt like the racing was much, much closer than we expected. Obviously, we saw some great performances from Sauber Alfa Romeo, and we saw some really strong performances from Kevin Magnussen and Haas, and I think we were all applauding, thinking that, hey, maybe... For the first time, the FIA and Formula One have cracked the code and they've introduced an aerodynamic formula that's going to be able to create some really close competitive racing. By the end of the season, that, that gap, that performance gap seemed to have reemerged. And once again, you had two or three teams that were contending for championships. And some of those teams that looked good at the beginning of the season had, had fallen off. How do you reflect back on the 2022 regulations? Were they what we expected? Were foundationally they a really good point? And maybe we were just, maybe our expectations for what 2022 were going to be was simply too high. What are your thoughts?
1: I think anyone believing we were going to have a repeat of 2021, I think had too, ma- too many... Uh, I th- let me repeat that. I think a repeat of 2021 was was too much to expect. I think that season is so so unique in the fact that it was so close and it was between two wonderful drivers there was never going to be a good sequel to it so it's always going to be a case of little by little. I think the regulations didn't do too bad at the start of the season as you say. Alfa Romeo were up there, Haas were up there and you know you did feel there was a sense of a shift but I didn't expect at the start of the year that Haas were going to start doing abroad and winning races left, right and centre. I didn't expect Mick Schumacher to be world champion. So I I knew what we were going to get and these smaller teams did eventually have to start saving money because of the budget cap. That meant Haas couldn't develop a car which was very good at the start of the season because they didn't have that much money. They introduced one upgrade which was I believe was uh, the French Grand Prix. And as the the mid- midfield teams, your Alpines, your McLarens, your Aston Martins Figured out and put poising And they figured out where they were going wrong They got better and better and better And that's why teams like Romeo and Haas fell back So I think it was more what I expected The racing was decent at times And then also at times it was rather boring I remember Australia being quite dull uh, I remember saying to someone that we should have gone back to Adelaide It was that boring <laughs> um, Because... But... Um, Yeah, it's kind of what I expected. I think what I would say is give... If we're here in 2024 and the racing hasn't improved, or 2024, that's when we start saying, okay, we need to go back to the drawing board. Because if by then the regulations haven't seen an improvement in racing, and we're still seeing the same six drivers fighting for a race win, plus Lando Norris making it seven from time to time, if that's a mixed weather condition race, then... They've failed. So I'd give it a little bit of time. The first season was a little bit underwhelming. But there are some shoots of progress we can work on. It's just how the F- F1 and FIA really enhance that. And that's going to be crucial for the future of the t- of the regulations.
0: Ed, what can we expect from Fernando Alonso at Aston Martin in 2023. Obviously, this was something of a shock move mid-summer and it set off one of the wildest craziest driver silly seasons we've ever seen. How will he coexist with Lance Stroll and can we expect meaningful strides in performance from the Silverstone team? We know Lawrence Stroll has invested so much money in that team. But we've not yet seen any of that come to fruition on the track. Fernando Alonso is obviously going there and he's saying all the right things. He was impressed with the car in winter testing at Yas Marina, immediately following the finale of the 2022 season. But what can we expect from Fernando Alonso at Aston Martin with all of the unknowns surrounding that team?
1: I think it'd be too much to say, too much to ask, too much for him to, to win the championship. I think that's a no-go. I think what we can expect from him is to really continue on the progress of what Sebastian Vettel did in the latter stages of 2022, when that car was getting better and better and Seb was really getting the maximum out of it, You know, particularly in Austin, where he led from a good, for a couple of laps and was fighting hard for sixth or seventh with K-Mag. So I can see Alonso really following on from that and maybe getting a few top fives, maybe even the odd podium if we do have a wet race or... One which starts on the wets and then moves to inter- intermediates and vice versa. So it's gonna be it's gonna be a good year for Aston Martin, providing they get it right, and providing that providing both Camps bearing United, mind Alonso, and Stroll did have that rather hair raising crash at Austin last year. Sorry, this year. So that will be in the back of uh, the likes of Dan Fallows and Lawrence Stroll's mind how they work together. And I think if they set down their differences and they say to, say to each other, right, we've got to work as a team. We need to beat Alpine. We need to beat McLaren. If we work together and the package is good, we can go for fourth. That's where they're going to be really fighting for fourth in the constructors' championship and getting the odd podium. So I think there's there's reasons to be optimistic. There's going to be no repeat of L plan. I think L plan has been firmly d- transferred to the plan. Uh, it might have some different details to it to the one that agreed in in, uh, in Enstone. But yeah, I think Fernando can feel a little bit optimistic. But of course, there will also be the proof in the pudding that 2024 is the year where we get the final conclusion on it, whether it has worked or whether it's flopped.
0: Rookie drivers for the 2023 season include Oscar Piastri, obviously going to McLaren when I think we all expected him to go to Williams and then expected him to go to Alpine, Nick DeVries, and Logan Sargent. From your opinion, what can we expect from these drivers and how will they importantly compare to their young teammates? I
1: think all three have very different expectations. With Piastri, he's going to be there to find his feet but he's also then going to be expected to challenge Lando Norris and that won't be easy Lando has really grown as a driver over the past 24 months so i think Oscar will just really need to get his head get his head into the game and i think he will do because Oscar is a very talented driver he's won plenty in juniors he's won in he won in F3 he won in F2 so he's no slouch and i think he will be expected to get points on a consistent basis I don't think there'll be that level of high expectations that Van Dorn had in McLaren, per se, where he was tipped to be the next great big thing, and unfortunately, he didn't have the right equipment. With De Vries, he has that little bit of F1 experience under him, with that super sub appearance at Monza, and he will be expected to lead the team, now that Pierre Gasly has departed for Alpine. And I think, with De Vries, he comes in with that extra bit of experience from his time in Formula E, and I think he will do fairly well, providing he has the car under him. But he has the pressure of knowing that he's expected to lead the team. Albert Marco's talked about they want to, him to lead the team. And if he doesn't lead the team and he doesn't perform, there's plenty of juniors waiting in the wings. Liam Lawson, A.M.U. Yuasa, Isaac Hadja, Dennis Hauger, They're all waiting for that chance. And if he doesn't perform, then he could be out. As for, for Logan, again, it's just finding his feet. And then trying to beat Albon, bearing in mind they want him to be a good second driver. Not saying that is any disrespect to Nick 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 Nittle, not saying that's any disrespect to to Nicholas Latifi, but they want someone a little bit closer. Sargent will bring that, I think, but I don't expect him to be beating Albon on a consistent basis until maybe the mid part of the first half of the year. I think just give these guys time. They're all fairly fresh to, to Formula One racing and they also. You can't put too much pressure on them because then they'll start making the mistakes and then they'll start performing. So don't expect a great deal at first, but expect them to be in the points
0: by, I would say, at least Melbourne, at least one or two of them. We sit here. It's the holiday season. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, what are your biggest holiday wishes for the 2023 Formula One season on... End off the track, what are the things that you're most excited about seeing over the course of the next 12 months? Where do we start?
1: <laughs> Where do we start? <laughs> um, I would like to see a closer title battle. I think we all could do. We've seen a two-three-way title fight between Max, Checo, Lewis, Charles as well. Let's throw George in there. I'd like to see the racing get a touch closer. I think at times it was fairly stagnant, particularly in Mexico when... You can't really remember anything apart from Daniel Ricciardo's charge for the order. I mean, you know, we need to see more closer racing. I would like to see. I would also like to see another couple of teams added this year for 2024. I think this is the big worry for me in the fact that if one team goes with to 18 cars, so an Andretti would be an Andretti being there or a Calvin Low led pro- project would be very nice. I'd also just like to see, you know, fans to be a bit more united. At times, it got very toxic, and I think we could all just bond for once. So hopefully, it will be clean and fair on the track as well as off it. And also, can we just have tougher penalties for bad, ba- for bad cases of drive misblur? Can we just have, you know, tougher penalties for cases of bad driving etiquette? Some of the drivers were getting away with literal murder from time to time. Can we have the stock goes brought back instead of You know, time penalties. So, stricter race control would be nicer, too.
0: I think if Formula One and the FIA can deliver on even half of of your wishes for 2023. I think it will make for a fantastic championship. And it's super super early. It's probably way too early to even put this out there, but if you were t- if you were asked by say a Canadian podcast host on Boxing Day what your early prediction is for a driver's champion for 20 20- and I'm not going to hold you to this, but a driver's champion for 2023 and a constructors ch- champion for 2023, where would you put your early money? Well, Last year, I was on a podcast and I said Charles would win the championship. That didn't work out. So,
1: I am a bit of a jinx. So, I'm going to say, don't hurt me, please, Red Bull fans. Um, I will say Max Verstappen will be driver's champion and Red Bull constructors. Mainly because of the fact that next year's cars are really just an evolution of this year's. And the RB18 was virtually bulletproof once it got its weight issues sorted out. So, I can see them really take, making that next step. As for the Stappen, last year he was pretty much dominant and although I expect the field to be closer. I think you just have that edge to wrap up title number three.
0: I completely agree. And people keep asking me this question, which is why I wanted to ask you and just make sure that I wasn't completely out to lunch. But I feel the exact same way that that Red Bull was such a great package. I think they win the driver's title. I think they win the constructor's title. I do think it's going to be much, much closer. I think we'll probably see five or six different drivers potentially win a Grand Prix this year. And it certainly won't be decided four or five races out. Maybe it doesn't go down to Yas as it did in 2021 and 2016 and 2014, but I think it'll be a much tighter championship and there'll be much more compelling reasons to watch Formula One after the summer break because I think the titles were all but decided by the summer break this year. And I think a lot of the Formula One community checked out a little bit on the championship, except obviously the Red Bull fans that were invested in seeing Max being able to wrap up that championship. My friend, I'm still 100% committed to bringing you back on to do an interview series podcast for all All of our listeners, you know um, our interview series podcast has been a huge success. It's a really great way to get to know personalities within the Formula One ecosystem and the Formula One sphere, understand how they cover the sport from a reporting perspective, learn a little bit about their background. So we're going to bring Ed back early in the new year to do an interview series podcast to do a little more of a deep dive into his career, his background as an F1 reporter, how he chooses to cover the sport, how he got into F1 journalism to begin with, but before we do that, and before we sign off today, Ed, I want to make sure we give you the opportunity to let everyone listening at home know where they can follow you on social media.
1: So, if you wish to follow me, God help you. Uh, my Twitter handle is <laughs> uh, my Twitter handle is 99 or one word, and it's lower KC, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I remember. And if you want to. Check out my writing, then follow Total Motorsport. There's a link in my bio on Twitter. And yeah, happy reading if you really wish to uh, read my stuff.
0: I highly, highly recommended. Ed writes some really great, truly unique F1 content. He's embedded in the paddock. He's embedded in, in the sport. He's an FIA credentialed reporter. So you get some really great reporting out of him. He's one of the best in the industry, which is why we were so excited to be able to bring him on the show Today For everybody at home, we probably won't get another podcast out before New Year's, so wishing everybody at home a Happy New Year's. Please enjoy your holidays no matter where you are or what holidays you celebrate. I hope you and your friends and family can spend some time together. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at f one pod If you like the show, please make sure to give us a follow on Twitter, or, sorry, Twitter on Spotify or Apple, and a rating or a review on any of those podcast platforms, of course, means the world to all of us and once again thank you so much for joining us today this was a pleasure hopefully we can treat this as a warm-up to getting you back for an interview series podcast to everyone at home i hope this was a great treat a nice boxing day pleasure as you recover from your crazy holidays so speak to everybody soon thanks again for joining us bye for now